This episode contains descriptions of mental illness, death, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The following is from The Beckoning Fair One by Oliver Onions. He rose and struck a light. The room was as usual. He struck a second match. A candle stood on the table. He lighted it, and again, he looked round. There was nothing, but there had been something, and might still be something. With this staggering impossibility, he was now face to face. Something did persist in the house. It had a tenant other than himself, and that tenant, whatsoever or whosoever, had appalled Oleron's soul by producing the sound of a woman brushing her hair. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back. I'm Alastair Murden, and this is Haunted Places Ghost Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we reimagine ghostly tales from some of history's greatest authors. The following version is our own unique take. It may feel familiar in some ways and different in others. We hope you enjoy it. You can find episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today, we're concluding our series on haunted artists. All month long, we've been retelling stories about people whose artistic pursuits took a sinister turn. This week's story is no different. Published in 1911, The Beckoning Fair One is often described as one of the greatest ghost stories in Western literature. But its author is relatively obscure. Oliver Onions was an English novelist known for his grim satirical stories and supernatural tales. Though Onions received some critical recognition for his work, his books were never commercially successful. And today, many of them are out of print. In this way, he's not so different from the protagonist in today's tale. The Beckoning Fair One is about a writer named Paul Oleron. I'll be telling the story from his perspective. Paul longs to achieve artistic perfection, but creating great literary works doesn't always pay the bills. So when he finds an affordable apartment that just needs a coat of paint, it seems too good to be true. But what Paul doesn't understand is that he didn't find the apartment. The apartment found him. Coming up, Paul walks into a trap. My story begins on a sweltering summer afternoon in 1875. That was the first time I laid eyes on the house on Forster Court. It was the beginning of my end, though I did not realize it at the time. I was taking a long walk around the neighborhood, as I often did in those days. At the time, I was renting a room in a dull cinder block boarding house. It stank of lye and old cabbage, but... It was all I could afford. 
After years of rejections, my finances were in a dire state. I had finally found a publisher, and they'd even given me an advance on my novel, but it was barely enough to last till spring. Once the book was finished, I hoped things would change. But until then, I would have to be content with my modest boarding house and afternoon strolls. As I neared the corner of State Street, I heard the sound of distant harp music coming from a narrow alleyway. It was strange. I must have walked past that spot hundreds of times, but I'd never noticed the brick archway leading off to a shadowy side street. Curious, I followed the music down the winding lane and emerged into a sunlit green. The wide patch of grass was bordered by rows of charmless tenements, but one old stone building stood apart from the others. A wooden sign hung from its ornate portico. It read, To lease, inquire at number six. Just then, the mysterious harpist ceased playing. My eyes searched the courtyard where my gaze landed on the building's entrance. To my surprise, the front door had been left slightly ajar. I mounted the stone steps, then paused at the threshold. I knew I ought to get permission before entering, but I felt an odd attraction to the house, as if there might be something valuable waiting inside. I found myself fantasizing about the rooms beyond the door. Now, the manor was in poor shape, but in its prime, it must have been a palace. I pushed open the door and stepped into a musty entrance hall. Beyond was a narrow staircase leading to a charming sitting room, a kitchen overlooking the square, a bathroom, and a bedchamber. A tingle of excitement spread through me. With a little work, those rooms could be everything they had once been, and the perfect apartment to finish my novel. I practically skipped all the way to the brick building marked number six. I knocked on the door and was greeted by a sharp-featured old man in a dirty black shirt. I cleared my throat. <clears throat> I have questions about the house across the square. Would one be able to rent out a portion of it? Perhaps just the bottom floor? The man shrugged. I suppose. I'm Mr. Barrett, the caretaker. The solicitor who owns the place hasn't been able to find a renter for years, so I can't see why he'd object to making a little money off the old wreck. I tried to keep the eagerness from my voice. And the rent for that? Mr. Barrett scratched his chin. Maybe two shillings a week? My heart jumped. That was less than I was paying at the boarding house. I couldn't hide my delight. If the owner agrees, I can move in right away. Mr. Barrett nodded. I can't imagine that he'd say no. He gave me an appraising look. Tell me, are you a man of God? I laughed uncomfortably. <laughs> as much as anyone else, I suppose. Barrett narrowed his eyes. If you're moving into that house, you'll want to be. He was certainly an odd fellow, but I wasn't going to let him keep me away from this stroke of good fortune. A few days later, I returned to Forster Court and Mr. Barrett told me that the owner had agreed to my terms. The place was mine. Mr. Barrett offered to help with some of the more difficult repairs. I told him I couldn't pay much, but he said he'd take whatever I could afford. 
We went to work that very day, painting and cleaning. Diligent scrubbing revealed iron filigree on the fire screen and the moldings in the sitting room required only a little paint to shine. In the kitchen, there was an old-fashioned powder room, a closet with a little window on the door. Long ago, an elegant lady would have used the room in order to powder her elaborate hairstyles without making a mess. When I entered the kitchen, I often thought of the woman who'd used that powder closet. Did she adore the place as much as I did? Did she admire the latticed windows and the carved door panels? What had she left behind in this house? I found my first trace of her after a few weeks. I was sitting at my desk and struggling to write when my gaze drifted to the wooden seats beneath the windows. I thought how much nicer they'd be if they were lined with something. Before I knew it, I was taking measurements for cushions. I noticed that nails had been driven into the edge of the seats. Curious, I grabbed a hammer and began prying them up. Once I'd pulled up the last nail, I lifted the top of the seat to find a small storage space beneath. Sitting inside was a large piece of red fabric shaped like an irregular triangle. At first, I thought it might be an old blanket, but it had several buckles and straps along the longest side. As I examined it, a knock came from the door. I startled at the sound. I'd almost forgotten that I was expecting a visit from my old friend, Elsie Bengoff. Elsie was a robust whirlwind of a woman, a successful journalist. Without waiting for an answer, Elsie came bustling into the room, her curls askew under her broad-brimmed hat and her cheeks pink from the summer heat. So, this is your new home. I suppose it's not a complete wreck. I laughed. <laughs> Elsie, your candor is always a breath of fresh air. Come here, would you? I need your keen intellect. Elsie came to stand beside me, and I held up the strange red cloth. I just found it in the window seat. What do you suppose it is? She examined it and replied, oh, How funny. It looks like a harp cover. My breath caught in my throat. The music that had led me here. Hadn't it been a harp? Elsie tossed the cover aside and seated herself upon the settee. So, enough niceties, tell me, what progress have you made with Romilly Bishop? Elsie loved to help with my writing, but she was particularly invested in my current novel, probably because she had inspired its protagonist. Romilly Bishop was also a strong-willed woman who wasn't afraid to speak her mind. Elsie thought this novel was going to make my career, There'd been a time when I'd agreed, but lately I'd begun to feel unsure about my beloved Romilly. I groaned and replied, Maybe we ought to talk about your work instead. Elsie shrugged. Same as ever. Gossip and political intrigue, fiscally rewarding but intellectually empty. Come now, let's hear about the work of a real artist. I sighed. The truth is, I'm a bit disinterested. I'm not sure that it's worth writing anymore. I think I might start over. At that, Elsie gave a sharp cry. I spun around and saw her cradling her hand against her breast. She looked wide-eyed at the window box. She laughed through her discomfort. <laughs> I think your house bit me. 
I looked down and saw a bloody nail sticking out of the window box. I drew in a breath and pulled Elsie into the washroom where I could examine the wound. The nail had nearly gone through her hand. Blood dripped from her palm onto the floor and was absorbed into the floorboards. Elsie looked up at me as I bandaged her hand. Paul, you're so close. You mustn't give up on Romilly. I sighed. If something isn't working anymore, shouldn't you give up on it? You know, I feel that about writing sometimes. I chose this when I was young, and what a costly choice it was. I could have had a comfortable life, a family, a wife. Elsie's cheeks flushed. You still could. You could have a wife. She looked into my eyes, and in that instant I understood a truth I'd been denying for years. Elsie was in love with me. All our visits together, all those times that she'd taken my hand or touched my shoulder. How had I not seen it? Suddenly, rather than being happy, I felt enraged. She was so excessive, so loud and brash, too gaudy for me in my tasteful apartment. She didn't belong there. Elsie's eyes began to well with tears, and I wondered if she could tell what I was thinking. I suddenly felt ashamed. Why would I react like that? Elsie was kind and clever. I'd be lucky to marry her. I bit my lip. Are you all right? Elsie looked to the floorboards and replied, I'll be fine. It just hurts, that's all. I'd best be going. Then she seized her hat and was gone before I could say another word. Unsure of what to do, I walked back to the window and gazed at the bloody nail sticking out of the wood. It was so strange. I could have sworn that I'd pulled out all the nails. Elsie's words came back to me then. Your house bit me. Coming up, Paul descends into a troubling obsession. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Who forced a famed explorer to lose his way? What did a missing Hollywood starlet leave behind? And how could the heiress to a Chicago candy fortune just vanish? Every Thursday on Disappearances, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. That evening, I sat, staring into the flames in my hearth, thinking about the peculiar events of the day. I thought of Elsie's visit and the nail that had gone through her palm when I was so sure I'd removed them all. 
Then there was the revelation that Elsie was in love with me. I had great affection for her. She was kind and beautiful, my dearest and most loyal friend. But somehow, the thought of her romantic interest in me made me angry. She was too... much. If I was going to marry, it had to be the right person. I imagined a pale, flaxen-haired wisp of a lady strumming away at a harp. Someone like the aristocratic woman who I believed once inhabited the house. Delicate. Refined. Elsie was hot-blooded and energetic. She sweat and bled. The fair creature I wanted was someone else entirely. I realized then the woman I truly wanted to write about was nothing like Elsie or Romilly, Elsie's fictional counterpart. She was subtle, enigmatic, alluring. It was up to me to bring her into existence. And if I was going to do it, I had to start fresh. I grabbed my manuscript of Romilly Bishop and held the pages over the fire. At that moment, I heard a noise that made my hair stand on end. I spun around and searched the room. It was empty, but I'd heard that sound so clearly. It was unmistakable, the rustling of a woman brushing her hair. I couldn't help imagining that she was there beside me, so close she could run her fingers across my neck. I collapsed into my armchair and listened intently. The sound of the hairbrush was gone. Instead, I could hear mice scuttling in the walls and the wind howling through the eaves. The kitchen faucet was leaking and the steady dripping seemed to tap out a pattern, a kind of tune. Eventually, it lulled me into a trance. My eyelids grew heavy and then finally, I fell asleep. That night, I dreamed of her, my delicate, fair-haired beauty. She stood at the door of my home, beckoning me in, a being of pure light, a spirit who could inspire me to heights of genius. I awoke the next morning to a violent knocking. When I opened the door, I found Mr. Barrett standing before me. He pursed his lips. Why didn't you answer before? He demanded. I was asleep, I said curtly, exasperated at his rudeness. Barrett looked perplexed. But I could hear you humming. I told him he was mistaken, but Barrett insisted. You were. I recognized the tune. He began to hum an oddly familiar melody. After a moment, I realized that I'd heard it last night in the dripping of the tap. My pulse quickened. I must have been humming it in my sleep. What did you say the name of the song was? Barrett sighed. <laughs> it's called The Beckoning Fair One, an old folk song usually played on the harp, but that's not why I came. I saw that woman who stopped by yesterday. I thought I'd remind you what the good book says about men who corrupt young women. I made a sound of disgust. <laughs> I wasn't corrupting anyone. She's a friend. Barrett interrupted me. I don't care for excuses. There's a God above who will judge you, sir. 
Until he does, I won't abide by it. I sputtered indignantly, but Barrett turned and left without another word. At first, I was furious at his insinuations, but as time went by, I realized it didn't really matter. The people outside my home seemed less important with each passing day, even Elsie. And perhaps that was for the best. After all, it was almost as though the house disliked her. Or perhaps my beckoner was jealous. Maybe it was she who'd wounded Elsie's hand. I supposed it made no difference. Whether it had been by accident or by design, I didn't think Elsie would ever have the courage to return. But then, on a chilly day in late November, Elsie proved me wrong. She arrived on my doorstep, looking bedraggled and melancholy. I can't stay, she said. I came because I heard about a call for short stories and I thought you ought to know of it. She then handed me a letter. I stopped myself from groaning aloud. Thank you for thinking of me. Elsie looked stung. She looked at the ground and told me she'd better be going. I followed after her. Please, let me see you out, I insisted. Elsie started down the stairs, calling out. No, no, please. I can see myself. There was a loud crack and Elsie shrieked as her foot broke through the wooden step. I ran to her to find a shard of wood had stabbed her in the calf. A red stain was already spreading across her skirt. She looked at me, tears streaming down her face. I shouldn't have come. I should have known. You don't. I suddenly felt like a hand was clutching my heart. Elsie, you are so dear to me. Her voice trembled as she replied. Please, stop. Leave me a little pride. I went silent and helped her up. I accompanied her down the stairs and then across the green. She stopped me when we reached the end of the lane. Please, she said. I can go on by myself from here. I tried to insist on taking her to a doctor, but she wouldn't hear of it. She joked, Maybe I'll allow it the next time your house attacks me. I took a deep breath and replied, Elsie, I'm so sorry, but you mustn't come again. It's the caretaker. He... Elsie shook her head. You can't lie to me, Paul. I know you too well. It's not the caretaker who wants me gone. It's you. I watched, ashamed, as she then limped down the alley. But the instant she disappeared, a strange feeling washed over me. I felt oddly liberated. I was free of her, and now my thoughts could drift back to my great work, my new novel. I was anxious to get home, but first I headed toward the church. I needed to see an old acquaintance. The Reverend Peter Mathers greeted me with a cheerful grin and led me to his wood-panelled study. He was a small man with large, thick-rimmed glasses and silver hair. As the vicar, he was charged with the town's record-keeping and held a wealth of knowledge about local history. I visited him once before when researching my previous book. As I sank down into an armchair, 
he poured himself a drink and asked, So, how can I help you? I explained that I wanted to know about the history of my new home. An eager glint sparked in his eye. Ah, yes, I know that old house on Forster Court. There are plenty of rumors about the place, but what I can tell you is that the last tenant died there 12 years ago. My heart skipped a beat. A woman? The vicar shook his head. A man. A painter named Madley. It was an odd case. They found him lying in his bed, thin as a rail he was. The only explanation they could come up with was that he'd starved to death. I frowned. And did a woman live there before that? The vicar wasn't sure that was before his time. He began to babble on about record-keeping in the parish, but I was no longer listening. I was thinking about Madley. What had he seen in that house that affected him so profoundly? I was thinking of my beckoner again. A muse is a funny thing. She might drive some men mad, but others are strong enough to tame her. With her help, they can create truly beautiful art beyond the work of mere mortals. I was suddenly eager to get home. I'd spent enough time away. She would be waiting for me. After that day, I felt her presence more than ever. What had once been a silly fancy was quickly becoming an obsession. She was so real. It was as if she waited for me around every corner, yet I could never catch a glimpse of her. It frustrated me to no end. If I could just see her, then I would be able to write my book. Not a disposable tale like Romilly Bishop, but a work of true genius. Soon, I found that if I stood in the doorway of my bedroom, I could see into every room in the house. I waited there for hours, watching for the slightest movement. A shadow falling across the kitchen, or a curtain billowing in the sitting room. But still, I never saw her. After some time, a letter came from my publisher. They were deeply concerned and wished urgently to speak with me, but somehow it seemed unimportant. Those sorts of worries belonged to my old life. I lived in a different world now, one where all that mattered existed between the walls of my home. Before long, I'd arranged for provisions to be delivered to my door every week, but I soon lost interest and let them pile up in the hall. They weren't worth a trip out to the landing. More letters from my publisher arrived, but I didn't open them. The only thing I needed was my beckoner. This was my true hunger. I waited and waited, thinking of what I would write when the time came. Then, one rainy night, I had a realization. I was laying in bed, listening to the raindrops tapping a pattern against the window panes when it occurred to me. It was Romilly who was keeping my beloved away. I hadn't burned the manuscript as I'd intended weeks ago. That was why my beckoner wouldn't show herself. How could she, with her rival still living in my house? I ran to my desk and found the manuscript. I should have thought of it sooner. 
I knelt by the hearth to feed the pages into the fire when a knock interrupted my reverie. Then there was a voice, Elsie's voice. Paul, she called out. Are you in there? Paul. A searing rage came over me. For a moment, I wanted to open the door and lunge at her, but then Elsie's voice came again. Paul, please, I think you're in trouble. I stifled a low chuckle. Didn't she know? She was the one in danger. With that, I dropped the first page of Romilly Bishop into the hearth. One by one, the flames devoured the pages and Elsie kept crying my name. I mimicked her high-pitched whine. Paul, Paul, it's horrible. I laughed again. She was so insignificant. Even now, her cries were fading. All that mattered was the fair one. The last page of the manuscript burned, and I leapt to my feet. It was time. I looked around the room, and my heart nearly stopped. A shadow was rising in the hallway. It was pooling like black silk, floating toward me, arms outstretched. Its face, her face, was thin and pearlescent. She was everything I'd imagined. I closed my eyes and felt a kiss upon my lips. For a moment, we floated. Then Elsie's voice cut through our embrace. Paul, I... Suddenly, the lips were gnashing teeth, tearing at my flesh. I screamed and clawed at my face, falling back into bed. The shock of it overtook me, and the world turned black. I awoke in a panic. What had happened? Where was Elsie? I screamed for her to watch out, to leave. But my voice was a hoarse whisper. Suddenly, I understood what I had lost. I'd given up my novel and my friend, my love. I tried to raise myself out of bed, but I was so weak, I could barely walk. I crawled to the kitchen, desperate for a drink of water. I stumbled to the powder closet where the glasses were kept, but the door wouldn't budge. Something was blocking it. I poured at the panel covering the window in the door until I finally pushed it aside. My blood went cold. There was something stuffed inside. It was wrapped in the harp cover, the faded red cloth now mottled and stained. With a trembling hand, I reached out and pulled it away. My heart stopped. It was a woman's features beneath the fabric. Wide eyes, round, rosy cheeks. I awoke in my bed some time later. The body was gone. Elsie had never been here. There was only one woman in that house, my fair one, and I would lay there, ready for her arrival. Even now, after the constables took me away, I am still awaiting her. I know she is hiding somewhere. I will keep waiting. The ecstatic day when she will finally show herself to me is almost at hand. Almost at hand.
Oliver Onions had great ambitions as a writer. He believed in the importance of creating pure art, uncompromised by popular opinion. But it would seem his wife, the novelist Berta Ruck, had no such pretensions. Berta was a prolific writer whose romance novels were far more popular than her husband's work. According to some, Onions couldn't understand why his wife's books were so lucrative and resented her role as the family breadwinner. Knowing this, perhaps it's no coincidence that Onion's two main characters have a similar dynamic. Elsie is pragmatic and productive, while her male counterpart refuses to compromise his creativity for commercial gain. Elsie doesn't need to write genius works of art or find an ethereal muse who promises divine inspiration. She's happy enough to write for a living and love the very mortal and very flawed Paul Oleron. Paul, on the other hand, chases unattainable perfection only to wind up empty-handed. He's lost everything in pursuit of a phantom. In the hopes of making something great, he's created nothing at all. For an artist, what could be more horrifying than that? Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places Ghost Stories. We will be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free exclusively on Spotify. See you on the other side. Haunted Places Ghost Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places Ghost Stories was written by Zoe Louisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Robert Teamstra and Alex Garland, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Alastair Murden.